Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, April the 7th, 2023. It's that time of the week, the end of the week for our weekly conversation with my old friend Keith Tier. Um, who, amongst other things, is the CEO of Signorank. He just closed a round of financing this week. Congratulations, Keith. He's the only man, I think, in the universe who can raise money in this atmosphere. And we are apparently, according to Keith, in That Was The Week newsletter, I'm not sure how serious he is. I'm not sure how serious he ever is. But we may be hitting the bottom um, and perhaps coincidentally or not, he launches his newsletter with reference to his wife's piece about uh, venture funding from Crunchbase News. Keith, is there any connection between Genet and hitting the bottom? Oh, Andrew. I couldn't is... resist. I mean, you, you, you set yourself up for that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, uh, we can't talk about that because I'll, I'll, I'll be thrown out of the house for the weekend. But well, maybe, maybe Genet will hit your bottom. You are, you're, you're pretty naughty. I mean, in this, uh, in this current woke environment, I'm surprised you're, you risk making jokes of that nature. But well, I'll be thrown off Twitter, or actually, probably Elon will be pleased. I'll be the only person left on Twitter making yeah, exactly. kind of sexist remarks. Anyway, but, in all seriousness, Keith. Hitting the bottom. Are you being serious or are you being in your own uh, Tyrian way, making fun of the consensus? A bit of both. Uh, you, you might notice that the, uh, the headline of the newsletter has a question mark, uh, but the graphic doesn't. And I added the question mark after I'd done the graphic. <clears throat> so, so clearly I was considering how serious I was myself about it. I... Uh, the, the headline is derived from not just Genet's coverage, but Genet's coverage on Crunchbase did get widely picked up in the media. And she, the headline of her piece is that venture funding is down 53% year on year. Um, and that, that obviously is a massive drop. And it is borne out in the numbers I see at Signal Rank across every funding round. Um, the, the, the amount raised is down. The valuations are down. Carter also produced its quarterly report this week, and it confirmed the same thing. Um, now, of course, anyone who watches that was the week regularly, this will not be a surprise. It'll be a bit of a, why are you telling me this? I already knew kind of a headline. But I don't think it's widely understood what the linkages are between the correction in public markets, inflation, and interest mm. rates. Is it just the money sort of washing through the system, so to speak, or the absence of capital or cash? Why is venture funding down so much? Are they not able to raise the same kind of funds? No, they have a lot of money. It's to do with uh, the probability of an outcome. Uh, you know, a year or two ago, the probability of an outcome measured by value growth was very high. And value growth was a function of new investors investing in the next round after you'd invested in, in the current round. Now, all of the calculations, which used to make sense, don't make sense. The likelihood of the next round happening are much lower. And if you look further out, the likelihood of a public offering is a lot lower. 
due to the way public markets are behaving. So the entire value chain that begins with an angel investment, where you know that investor is focused on what the value might be 10 years from now, that whole value chain is, is unpredictable uh, and, and certainly currently very negative. So your crystal ball doesn't really tell you what to expect anymore. And insofar as it does, it, it isn't good. Well, I'm not going to make any jokes about crystal balls and hitting the bottom, but isn't this the perfect moment, Keith, to invest? I mean, it seems to me as naturally a counterintuitive person, when everyone's running one way, the smart investor runs the other. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And that's why Signal Rank was able to close a round because we, we invest in the best B rounds, as you know, um, and it is the best time, absolutely the best time. The best investors are gun shy. So when they decide to write a check, it implies that the due diligence they did on the company and the prospects um, persuaded them to go against the grain. And that's a very strong positive signal of the strength of that company. So this is, this is a really good time if you know what you're doing. But the weird thing is that when, I guess maybe it's like 1999, 2000, but we have two things simultaneously going on. We have the hitting of the bottom in theory, maybe in practice. And then we have this huge AI boom. So how can the two things coexist? Well, it, it, it didn't really coexist in 1999-2000 until Web 2.0 came along. Right. So I was thinking Web 2.0, and I guess Google already had its funding. Most of the the, the, yeah. the few Web 1.0 companies that became successful in Web 2 already had their cash. Yeah, but around 2005, um, seed funds started to emerge and seed investing kicked off at some scale eventually. And um, you had the aftermath of web uh, of, of the bubble bursting and the beginning of something new, which became very big and drove a lot of value. That is happening now, except closer together. And it isn't just AI, by the way. It's biotech. It's medical diagnostics. It's uh, quantum computing is beginning to happen. There's quite a lot of things happening uh, that will attract capital. I think fintech will still attract capital. Look at the post-Silicon Valley bank uh, emergence of uh, competing banks like Mercury and Brex um, uh, are growing very fast. So uh, like always, more than one thing's happening at once. And the headlines tend to be gravitate to the negative. In my editorial, I start with the negative, but they end with all the good things that are happening. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good things happening. And honestly, I think that, you know, if you're an angel investor or a seed investor or an A-round investor, this is probably the best 12 months that you've seen for 10 years. What about, uh, Keith, the, the other thing that seemed to be happening this week, which you have a lot of connections with, is, is all this news about Saudi money. Are the Saudis and outside investors, maybe from China as well, are they going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity? Because they have huge amounts of capital. Yeah, I, I included the Saudi stuff. There's two articles about Saudi Arabia because... There was a conference in Miami that the Saudi PIF fund attended and Dreesen was interviewed, for example, and made the point that the Saudis is more of a startup country than America is. And um, Keith Raboy, who lives there, 
made the statement that... Lives in Saudi or Florida? Maybe they're what? the same place increasing. In Florida. I mean, how can, how can Andreessen say such an absurd thing? Well, there's a very specific uh, backdrop to that statement. Um, about a year and a half ago, we covered it. Uh, Andreessen uh, launched this initiative, like um, uh, American Growth Initiative or something like that, that was very focused on the U.S.'s benefits. And his point was that the Saudis have invested in that, but the American government... Right, it was, they, they led it, I think, with a, a web piece or a, a blog about being ready to build. Yeah, exactly. And, and his point is Saudi money has come into that initiative, but the American government has largely ignored it, which he, to him demonstrates that at the government level, not really at the entrepreneur or investor level, but at the government level, America is not a startup country. And, and there is some merit to that. We've talked about uh, big, the anti-big tech. Yeah, I mean, Chris Schroeder has written about the Saudis on this front, but I've done some shows on Saudi human rights and the nature of this new city, Neon, which is surveillance capitalism perfected. It's, it's, it's a chilling thought, isn't it, Keith? Especially for libertarians like yourself to have such an authoritarian government driving innovation. Actually, libertarians ignore governments, authoritarian... It's all very well for you to ignore governments, but if you lived in Saudi, the government wouldn't ignore you. Well, I can tell you, I have a fairly robust relationship to to Neom. I I speak to the people at Neom quite often. And my perception of Neom is that it's a little bit like when a medieval society emerges into capitalism and overthrows the vestiges of that medieval feudal uh, thing. Neom represents kind of the next stage of Saudi Arabia to some extent. And I I think it would be foolish to see it as more of the same. I think it's actually something quite different. And it shows the evolution of that society. Uh, You know, um, obviously it's a complex issue. Saudi Arabia is definitely got standards that we would recognize as being medieval. Uh, but that's true of most of the former colonial world. They, well, I, yeah, you can argue as well, given inequality in America, when you walk around San Francisco, there's something very medieval about it. What about the other story that you noted? Keith Raboy, formerly, yeah. um, formerly of PayPal, one of, uh, the, um, one of the right-wing ex-Silicon Valley people, uh, his, um, his, uh, his warning about uh, American investors shouldn't be arming the enemy by helping China create its own version of a- open AI. Is, yeah. is this, what, what do you make of this, Raboy, He's, as the new digital cold warrior? You know, it's worthy of a longer conversation, Andrew. The reason I put it in, and the Saudi ones, is... There's clearly a dichotomy right now between globalist thinking <clears throat> investors and nationalist thinking investors. Um, the idea that AI should be part of the Cold War with China is a very nationalist point of view and is c- kind of quite alien to Silicon Valley culture. And Keith Raboy, to that extent, represents a kind of a militaristic, I'm an American point of view that most people in Silicon Valley would be alienated from. Maybe that's why you had to go to Florida. Is Peter Thiel in his camp? They're old yeah. friends. They but, both well, I, 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 together. On that topic, I don't know, but they certainly work together. 
Whereas Andreessen went the opposite way. They're very globalist. And the embracing of Saudi Arabia and Sequoia's uh, China fund investing in Chinese-based AI, which is what the crux of the argument's about, they're very globalist. And globalism and humanism, I think, go together. I don't think you can be a humanist and a nationalist. I think well, that's because you, because you pride yourself on being a globalist, and by definition, you think of yourself as a humanist. Isn't Andreessen just essentially uh, a hardcore, for better or worse, technocrat? He just doesn't care about politics, one way or the other. That uh, that is less and less true. If you follow him, he's an avid reader. He's got one of the most critical brains. I well, think you can be critical and an avid reader and still be a technocrat. What is a technocrat? Someone who believes that technology is always a solution, that we can, we don't need to fall into political ideologies of one kind or another. Every problem, we, we can engineer our way out of every problem. Yeah. Well, actually, my, my good friend Norman Lewis wrote a piece this week. He, he works for a think tank in Brussels, and he wrote a piece saying that uh, open AI or AI in general, chat GPT in particular, is anti-human and that uh, the positive response to it is indicative of a distrust of humans. And I said I thought it was the opposite, that, that chat GPT is the most human tech that we've ever invented because it is a supplement to humans, created by humans, learning from human knowledge. And yeah, but I guess it depends. I mean, as you say, it's part of a longer conversation, what you mean by humanism. Finally, on your essays of the week, you had one that I suggested you put in why journalists can't quit twitter by casey newton uh, you you have an interesting explanation it seems as if for all their criticism of musk and twitter they're still all still on it yeah well so my my, my view is that they're still on twitter because uh, they want to impress their peers and be acknowledged by their peers um, and that you can only do that in a forum where your peers are there with you. And, and so if you were to disengage from Twitter, even Jeff Jarvis this week did some tweets, and he's a strong Mastodon fan. I didn't think Jeff Jarvis was still alive. He's still alive. Yeah, he's a professor at New York University still. He's a very, you know, I kind of like Jeff. Uh, he's very thoughtful. I don't always agree with him, but that goes with the territory. Um is he more or less alive than Jimmy Carter, do you think? Oh, way more. Way more? Um, but, uh, but I would say that, um, you know, Twitter, Twitter is like uh, uh, a drug you're addicted to if you're a journalist. You can't, wh why would you possibly not want to be seen as an influencer on Twitter if you're a journalist? It's, it would seem to be de rigueur that you have to be on Twitter. So it's super hard for them to leave. And why wouldn't they pay for it? I mean, the amount that you would pay for Twitter compared to the New York Times is nothing. You pay way more for the New York Times. But on Twitter, you've got every newspaper on earth. Well, yeah. let's move to news of the week. Um, introducing Substack Notes. You have a soft spot for Substack. Seems as if, and I'm beginning to agree with you, actually, Substack may be a real alternative to Twitter. At some point in the next few months, probably that will become obvious. But for the moment, only you and I see that. What's Substack doing to take advantage of this void in the in the Twitter sphere? Well, it, it coined the phrase this week, the the subscription network. 
So that kind of combines both parts of what Substack wants to become. On the one hand, it's subscription-based, so writers and producers can earn money. And on the other hand, it's a network, so you can cross-post, cross-reference, mention, and so on. And what uh, Substack Notes is doing, although it hasn't been released yet, so this is a provisional assessment based on some screenshots, is it's creating um, a feed or a stream of uh, contributions from Substack writers and readers that is very Twitter-like, um, except unlike Twitter, there's no advertising and there's no kind of forced algorithm making you see stuff you're not interested in. It's all to do with what you Shouldn't we be doing more on Substack? That was the week. Well, we, you know, we do for a start. If you go to, um, if you go, if you join Substack, get an account and you go to inbox.substack.com, you'll see there's a section of chats and there is a chat section to that was the week where you can come and ask us questions for next week's show or whatever you want, really. Uh, Gilmore Gang is moved from Telegram to Substack this week to do exactly that. So if you go to gilmoregang.substack.com, you'll see everyone who appears on the Gilmore Gang is posting content for next the next show and, and discussing it as well, by the way, in the chats. So that, that is beginning to happen. We need to get more people. Maybe, Keith, if we promise that everyone who comes to our Substack uh, spot can hit our bottoms, will that... I knew you were going to say that. It was either that or crystal balls. But <laughs> Well, if, if you go on Substack, Keith might let you hit his bottom, although I can't. Yeah, you, realize, you realize that there's a strong danger you're going to get a, a backlash to your line of questioning in today's show. Yeah, well, backlash is what we're looking for. What about AI, Keith? <laughs> there's no week these days without news about AI. You have a whole section on that, too. In fact, you've You've invented a new section. We have news of the week, essays of the week, and now we have AI of the week. You know, the reason I did that is because if I didn't, AI was either going to dominate essays of the week or it was going to dominate... Take over, like AI is ubiquitous and insatiable. It takes everything over. But there's a lot, uh, a lot of really good writing. Uh, Stanford University produced uh, over 300-page report <clears throat> Key takeaways from Stanford's report has been written by uh, a TechCrunch author. Three, I mean, only Stanford University is capable of a 368-page report. Who actually reads that? I'm tempted to go and read it, aren't you? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm I hope you read it and you can summarize it in, in, in three or four words. Well, that's what, Devin, that's what Devin does, so that's good. I mean, look, generally speaking, most institutions are positive about AI's potential. The, the, the negatives, which includes Gary Marcus, who I also published this week, uh, even though I disagree with him for the most part, because um, I think critical thinking requires oppositional thinking as well. You've got to read people who disagree with you. Um, uh, you know, I think for the most part, everyone sees the potential. I don't really think most people are focused on the fear in the world, but Americans are 65% uh, believe that bad things will happen. It's the only country they in the world. bad things will happen, but everything. And whatever you poll Americans on, they have a negative. I mean, it seems to me as if AI means um, that uh, someone wrote a book about this a few years ago, that average is over. You can't be an average writer anymore because the quality of the AI is average. It's never going to be much more than average. 
Yeah. They're never going to be able to reproduce the quality of our show, Keith. But for most average journalists or average people, um, AI, GPT, or whatever other these platforms, whatever other algorithms they use, um, average is over. Isn't that right? Well, I, I think that might be a difficult framing because it implies replacement of humans by AI. I, I think AI is an enhancement technology, not a replacement technology for the most part. I think it's going to be both. I agree. But some for yeah. some average people, AI means yeah. well, I'm afraid their, their skill is over. But for others, it can enhance it. Yeah. For example, if you're a researcher and you employ copywriters and script writers, those three jobs probably end up being one job with AI instead of three. Uh, and, and uh, you know, where basically ChatGPT plays the role of the researcher and <clears throat> plays the role of the copywriter. You still write the script and choose what to take and what not to take. Even that ultimately might be done by AI. So, But I think it's mainly... Uh, creative endeavors that rely on knowledge that need human oversight to check the knowledge. It's a fantastic tool. It's just a uh, great tool. Keith, uh, noted for its omission from your AI of the week essays, um, nothing about Google and, and its launch, its announcement, the CEO that, that their version of chat GPT would now be integrated into the search engine. Do you think this is not that big a deal? It didn't, it didn't give me confidence that there's a there there yet. Um, I think everyone's standing back and watching Google in assuming that something will happen, but Google is, is so economically tied to ads on search results. It's super hard for them to, to put, anything excellent that replaces searches. Uh, now, I, I don't think for the most part, AI is a search tool, but I think people use search for things that don't need a search tool. And I think all those uses of search that where search is really a bad tool, a lot of those times, ChatGPT will be a very good tool, and so will Google's AI. And that damages Google economically unless they can figure out how to monetize it. It's not obvious how you would monetize AI other than through subscription as ChatGPT is doing. And that's not Google's core. So is it conceivable, history always seems to repeat itself with tech, that just that open AI is uh, to Google what Google was once to Microsoft? I think it's what Google was to newspapers and libraries. That's probably a closer analogy. I mean, how often do you go to the library now? How, how often do you buy a newspaper now, even a magazine for that matter? Um, it's rare. So Google basically was the replacement for other modes of discovery and learning. Um, I think that chat GPT will be the replacement for search for a lot of endeavors where search was never the best tool anyway. And what about the Microsoft play? You've been critical in the past of that. Is there any news on how they are playing this out. They must be really enjoying the crisis yeah. at Google, if it is indeed a crisis. Yeah, it's hard to gauge what the impact is of their decisions yet, but they, they, they have embedded their version of ChatGPT into Windows 11, which obviously has a, a big user base, uh, not as big as Android or iOS, but big. 
they have embedded it into the Bing search engine, which doesn't have a huge user base. And they've embedded it in the browser they have called Edge, which is their version of Chrome. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that they must be getting a lot of usage. Uh, they're trying to embed it in their search interface that means they can display ads around it. But that is a very uncomfortable marriage. So I don't see that lasting. I, I would predict failure for Microsoft still, although they're very much in the game. I'm not getting the, the, the sense that they're really going to own this. I don't think they're going to own this. I think the other things that happened in the last couple of weeks are more indicative. Expedia embedded uh, chat GPT uh, in beta. OpenTable did. Things like book me a flight, get me a table, and uh, book me a hotel room are all going to be able to be done by telling ChatGPT to do it through existing services that exist to do those things. That feels more like the future to me than everyone going to Bing. What about get me a wife? What about the dating sites? There's probably going to be some, uh, some uh, interface there, I would imagine, because anything that involves selection and recommendation or acting to spend on something that was recommended is in the sweet spot of this AI. And then um, investing, I guess you're doing that. I mean, have you integrated ChatGPT into uh, PageRank? Uh, not Pay, uh, SignalRank. SignalRank. Uh, I can't really talk about it, but we're, we're about, I, one thing I'd tell you. No one about, watches this, so you can talk about there, it. There will soon be SignalRank.ai. And in SignalRank.ai, uh, we are working on uh, a, a, an interface that's ChatGPT-like uh, called Ada, after, after, after the famous British woman who invented uh, computing as we know it. Um, Ada Lovelace. Exactly. And um, I don't know if that will ever see the light of day. It's uh, very early in its life right now. We'll see. But certainly it should be possible to say to it, you know, I, I have five million dollars to invest over the next twelve months. Can you tell me which companies at the A round stage, uh, you know, are the best companies doing, for example, biotech in the USA? And it should be able to tell you that. Is there any coincidence, Keith, that uh, the Google original search engine was called PageRank and you're called SignalRank? Well, pa PageRank counted inbound links to a page. We count signals from an investing round. So an investing round scores um, based on its signals. Uh, we don't ex expose what those signals are, but they're, they're very correlated to good outcomes. So um, yeah, there is, a, there is a similarity. It's, it's all counting and statistics leading to intelligent predictions. Well, good outcomes. Maybe next week we can announce you've been bought by Google or Microsoft or even OpenAI. Uh, startup of the week. You are the startup of my week. But last week, you were the startup of the week. You can't be the startup of the week every week. Who's your startup of the week, Keith? My startup of the week is actually Y Combinator's Demo Day. Um, it, it is Gary Tan's first Demo Day as CEO at Y Combinator. There are a couple of hundred plus companies, as always. And TechCrunch has <clears throat> two articles, one from each day, profiling what it thinks are the best of the batch. 
Um, and uh, there's a lot. There's almost 50 companies in these two articles. So I put it in there as a service to those who invest to uh, take a look. I will tell you, and I, this is from SignalRank's uh, knowledge, why Combinator's um, efficiency at turning a company into a unicorn is about 1% whereas really good investors have an efficiency above 10%. So be careful not to randomly select Y Combinator companies to invest in because 99 out of 100 of them don't end well. Yeah, and was Paul Graham your heartthrob at this event? Who knows? I, I doubt it because he lives in England, so I don't think so, but it, he may have traveled for it, possibly. So, so, you, so you're suggesting that why Combinator is a bit of a fraud? That they only pick oh, one no. out of a hundred. Well, it, it, you know, it has a hugely good business model because the average multiple of invested capital is about twenty-eight x. Um, so one in a hundred is is a big winner, but that produces twenty-eight times the money they invest in all of them. So, from a business model point of view, it's great. But if you're cherry-picking individual companies, not good at all. The reason they do well is because they're in all of them. Finally, you touched on this earlier, Tweet of the Week. It's an interesting tweet, but it's also interesting that there's a backstory to the Tweet of the Week. Yes. Yeah, so um, this is, this is uh, General Motors announcing that it's going to discontinue supporting Apple CarPlay and Android Auto in its next cars and replace it with a, a homegrown user interface and entertainment system. And um, you, you know, it wouldn't take too long to figure out that most people think that's a bad idea. Uh, only GM thinks it's a good idea. And uh, this tweet is from Patrick George, um, writing in The Verge, sh shining a light on that. Um, I, I think there are one or two other auto companies looking at the same opportunity, but it's really going against history. I think what you really should have in a car is almost um, uh, a, a highly capable display system with no software. And you plug your phone in and suddenly it has software. That seems the future to me. Um, so I'm, I, I, this is a puzzling one. What is that what you meant by the backstory? Or is there another backstory? Oh, no, the backstory is that you had to... Um... The, how you integrated this tweet into the newsletter. Oh, yes. Well, yes. Yeah, so I use Substack to publish that was the week, and Twitter has now blocked the possibility of Substack embedding tweets, which is what we do every week. Pretty stupid decision by Twitter. Why, why would you want to block the embedding of your core unit of economics, a tweet? You would want it to be everywhere possible. So punishing Substack by blocking it is also punishing Twitter. So what's, what's the logic for Twitter of not allowing you to do that? They're just angry that Substack's having this thing called notes that looks a little bit like Twitter. So they're punishing them for having the temerity to have their own product that it, to some extent replicates part of what Twitter does. That, that's what it is. It's, a, it, it's Elon in his worst mood deciding to inflict pain on uh, on a lowly commoner. Have you given up on Elon, Keith? No, Elon's great, but he does have this part of his personality which is a little bit irrational. Emotional, let's call it.